Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. This is a pre-recorded show which will be uploaded for your listening edification on the evening of Monday, June the 22nd, 2020. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. This is our 10th post-COVID show, A New World, But the Same Place. Okay, this is part three of a three-part series on becoming anti-racist. In part one of the show, we empirically detailed and sourced out the inequities that are largely driven by wealth inequality in our country and clearly reflect the second-class status of people of color, particularly African-Americans, well into the 21st century. We also looked at the compelling hypothesis that it's these insurmountable burdens in the system of structured inequality that has evolved from slavery to Jim Crow laws to continually evolving present-day manifestations of discrimination that have resulted in among other things, a median net worth of a white family being some 41 times greater than that of the median black family. That it's not just people of color that suffer from poverty and disenfranchisement, that increasingly the country itself, the majority population itself, all races are facing similar economic forms of discrimination that are inversely lining the pockets of the wealthiest segment of the population. That must be addressed. Uh, We also moved into the critique of the rationalizations, the false rationalizations, that it's a issue of lack of effort or personal responsibility. Part two featured Dr. William Darity's testimony on reparations in front of Congress and detailed the history of not just slavery, but of broken promises and all the forces that led to this profound disenfranchisement of people of color that suggest the only way out is through a reparations program, which we discussed last week. This week, we continue our discussion by highlighting some of the criminal justice incarceration reflections of systemic racism, as well as the story of ACORN and the bipartisan, not just Republican, but a Democratic persecution of ACORN allegations made without evidence, and then ultimately the demise of ACORN, and the lessons that we can learn from the bipartisan attacks without merit against ACORN, that more powerfully than words reflects the character of a nation or of a system. And we finish up the show tonight with an excerpt from the June 2018 show that we did with Dr. Darity, in which he details the solution-oriented side components again, in addition to reparations this time, the focus is instead on federal job guarantees and the history in our own country, uh, particularly around FDR years, of similar types of programs. So stay tuned. As we conclude our trilogy of shows around the work of Dr. William Darity of Duke University, and we push back on racism. So stay tuned. 
Bringing Light into Darkness dedicates this show in the context of Juneteenth celebration that Co-op Radio honors each year throughout the month of June. But first, as we do before every show, we first go to war. So welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. This is your host, Pedro Gatos. And we introduce this first segment of tonight's show, which was recorded just a couple of days ago on Saturday, June 20th, 2020, to be played tonight, Monday, the 22nd of June, 2020. Our first segment begins with an overview of the results of systemic racism on incarceration rates and the criminal justice system. Yeah, so in this segment, we wanted to uh, focus on issues connected to structured inequality that are reflected by incarceration and the criminal justice system here in our country. I did a presentation back in 2006 at the annual Texas Substance Abuse and Mental Health Institute. It was basically, the title of it was Our Addictive Culture, incarceration rates, and the failing war on drugs. I wanted to highlight some data from there that's really relevant to the devaluing of black lives and black and people of color. The incarceration rates and sentencing practices in particular is a general heading, but the African Americans represented about 14% of marijuana users back here in this 2003 period when this data was available for the 2006 presentation. And they were 30% of the arrests. So there was kind of a two-to-one ratio there. Um, Congress adopted an anti-drug abuse act in the fall of 1986 that included mandatory sentencing laws that people are fairly familiar with. And it was really referring to the 100-to-1 rule that was part of some of this legislation. If you remember, and maybe you probably don't don't remember because it was a long time ago, but one of the few outspoken critics at the time was Representative Barney Frank of Massachusetts, who called the, the bill, this uh, 86th bill, the legislative equivalent of crack. Quote, it yields a short-term high, but does long-term damage to the system, and it's expensive to boot, he said in September 1986. Reagan signed into law one week before the November 4th elections, in which Democrats won the control of the Senate, this 1994 omnibus bill. And this 94 law included a commission to look into the issue of the crack cocaine sentencing practices. This effort revealed a startling statistic that African Americans made up 88.3% 
of those convicted of federal crack offenses in 93, even though federal survey data showed that a majority of crack users were Anglo. In a 1995 report to Congress, the commission wrote that although the crack penalties apply equally, regardless of race, uneven enforcement can result in defendant pools that are not representative of who commits the crime. So the law included federal sentences for low crack offenses. This is the 1994-1995 period. Defendants convicted with five grams of crack cocaine were subject to a five-year mandatory minimum sentence. Uh, It took 100 times more powdered cocaine, namely 500 grams, to trigger that same penalty. In 1986, before mandatory minimums for crack offenses had become effective, the average federal drug offense sentence for blacks was 11% higher than for whites. In 1990, the average federal drug offense sentence was 49% higher for blacks. Okay? 20 years after this 1986 act, the kingpins, the dealers, are still not getting arrested. Uh, more than 80% of the defendants prosecuted for crack offense are African-American despite the fact that more than two-thirds of crack users are white or Hispanic. This was according to the disparity on crack cocaine sentencing by Mark Maurer. He was with the Sentencing Project. He wrote this in July 5, 2006. Uh, Data from the U.S. Sentencing Commission documented that 73% of crack defendants had only low-level employment in the drug uh, activities such as street-level dealers, couriers, or lookouts. This is from the same source. But by 1998, crack cocaine, if you looked at the use by race, and the source for this is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, that's SAMHSA, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is back in 1999. They estimated out of the 971,000 Americans, based on their uh, household surveys, who used crack cocaine in 1998, 462,000 or 49% were white, 324,000 were black, it's 34%, and 17% were Hispanic. Okay, so the drug war, did it target dealers? The source here is the Crime in America, the FBI Uniform Crime Reports 2002 report of the 1.7 million arrests for drug law violations in 2004, 81.7% were for possession of a controlled substance. Only 18.3% were for the sale or the manufacture of the drug. Again, focusing on the user, not the dealer type of thing. The incarceration rates by sex and race. The rate of incarceration in prison and jail in 2003 were some 726 inmates per 100,000 U.S. residents. The highest incarceration rate in the world. At mid-year 2004, the rate for white men was 717 per 100,000. For black men, it was 4,919 per 100,000. That's like a 6.9 greater ratio than for whites. These statistics are coming from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, prison and jail inmates at mid-year 2004 from the U.S. Department of Justice. Young males, 25 to 29 years old, blacks were 7.6 times higher rates than whites. That's a shocking difference, as we've already indicated, that whites were using at a higher rate. In 2004, the incarceration rates for blacks were 5.8 times higher than even 1993 apartheid South Africa. It was like 851 per 100,000 in South Africa apartheid in 1993 versus that 4,919 number per 100,000 in the United States. Are you getting that? 
I mean, two weeks ago, we documented that blacks were living longer if they were in prison than if they were living in the free world, based on the living conditions of the average black family. This week, we're suggesting that there are higher rates of incarceration for 21st century blacks in the United States than even in apartheid South Africa in 1993. This is the 21st century, and all we care is about how much progress has been made. About a third of black male high school dropouts aged 22 to 30 were in prison or in jail in 2000. That was 10 times the rate of white male dropouts, which was 3.3%. This information, this is from a Stanford report in 2005. An article was written by uh, Lisa Trey, T-R-E-I, called Higher Incarceration Rates Harm Social Stability, according to the scholars that participated at the Stanford study seminar. And they were the sociology professor Lawrence Bobo, He's the director of Stanford Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. And then also Bruce Western was the Princeton sociology professor that was also citing the, this data. The rates of women being reported to child welfare agencies for prenatal drug use. This is the mid-early 1990s. So regardless of similar or equal levels of illicit drug use during pregnancy, what you found was that black women were 10 times more likely than white women to be reported to child welfare, showing the prejudice there. And this is, you know, they're being reported for prenatal drug use. And I think here, really the most shocking and explicit type of statistic, if you will, that shows the value that is given to a black life versus a white life is that the taking of a black life, even by another black, was one-tenth as likely to be punished by the death penalty as the taking of a white life, okay? Uh, th this information here is from an article in the LA Times, at the, this is back in the 80s actually, 1984, and the author was David I. Brooke. It's called Gray Areas in Colorblind Justice. So you have this 10 times higher rate of death penalties depending on whether someone murdered is a white person or a black person. Yet a black who took a white life was five times as likely to receive the death penalty as a white person committing the same offense. So regardless of who was killed, if, it, if the perpetrator was white versus black, there was a five times difference there. And then one other newspaper article actually came out of the Dallas Times-Herald. A 1988 study uh, was talking about the Dallas County criminal justice system. It was an article by Ray Herndon of the Dallas Times-Herald in 1990. It was a front-page paper story, Race Tilts the Scales of Justice, and the findings were consistent with the ones we mentioned earlier, namely that the study of 1988 cases discovered that the Dallas County criminal justice system more severely punished killers and rapists whose victims are white than those whose victims are black or Hispanic. So the rape of a white woman received a median term of 10 years, while if the victim was Hispanic, the median prison term was five years, and if the woman victim was black, it was only two years. So there you go. That's what structured inequality is. That's what systemic racism defined is. So anyone that denies it is living in a different world. Is ignorant of reality in 400 years of history. Okay, we'll be back after this. We turn our attention to ACORN and the lessons it can teach us. As we continue to look at and explore systemic racism and structured inequality in this three-part series, systemic racism is connected to systemic inequality, which we defined as structured inequality. 
we have empirically documented in this three-part series the profound inequality and in growing wealth inequality at the center of this primary injustice. In fact, wealth inequality is the primary injustice, is our argument. Again, wealth being defined as net worth, your assets minus your debits. Much of the wealth inequality documentation can be accessed by going back to our June 8th show, which can be accessed at pedrogatos.org. But our analysis further claims that the month-long protests throughout the country that continues, although ignited by recent and repeated instances of blacks being murdered by police, that the driving force bringing people of all colors to the street is wealth inequality, as well as racism that challenges and compromises the dignity and livelihood and overall quality of life of the majority population while an elite minority continues to expand its percentage of the wealth pie, known as the American pie. The tendencies, the nature of the system is becoming more apparent as a consequence. And as we continue to celebrate Juneteenth, the assault on the disenfranchised, disproportionately made up of people of color, merits further explication. So today we highlight how any real and valid vehicle to address poverty and inequality endemic to the political economic model we call U.S. democracy must be itself co-opted or compromised by the powers that be. So is the case of ACORN, the Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now. We will show in this segment how the 2009 attack and defunding of ACORN was a bipartisan effort that Democrats were fully aboard and acted along with the Republicans in an unconstitutional manner to eliminate the vehicle of positive social change that Congress itself has failed to provide and continues to fail in delivering. So just to refresh folks, the Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now, ACORN, it did a lot of work around organizing welfare recipients, basically low-income working families around a number of issues, such as free school lunches, Vietnam veteran rights, hospital emergency room care access, unemployment, predatory lending, on and on and on. So we'll get to more of those specifics. ACORN was accused for several voter registration fraud cases. Uh, to that point, on December 22, 2009, the Nonpartisan Congressional Research Service, the CRS, released a report on ACORN finding, quote, no instances of individuals who were improperly registered by ACORN attempting to vote at the polls, end quote. And, quote, no instances in which ACORN violated the terms of federal funding in the last five years, end quote. Yet this report, which had all sorts of fact-checking information in it, found little traction in the news media. On March 1st, 2010, the Brooklyn, New York District Attorney's Office announced after a five-month investigation, it found no criminal wrongdoing by the three ACORN employees in the Brooklyn office who were captured on video made by O'Keefe and Giles, which had generated so much of the controversy and public outrage and which helped frame ACORN in the public's mind. It was later revealed that the videotapes had been manipulated in order to prejudice its implications. In March 2010, ACORN CEO Berta Lewis announced that ACORN was closing down 
the following month, April 2010. Mission accomplished. But ACORN was created and had three decades of community organizing. ACORN emerged out of the anti-poverty activism of the 1960s. By 2008, ACORN was the largest community organizing group in the United States. It had chapters in about 110 cities in 40 states, and ACORN and its affiliates had over 1,000 employees and nearly a half million dues-paying families. ACORN, on September 14, 2009, the Senate voted 83 to 7 to block the Housing and Urban Development Department from giving grants to ACORN, thus denying housing and community grant funding to ACORN. Up until that point, it had received over the years over $50 million in aid to promote their services and help the poor. The House followed suit just three days later on September 17th, 2009 and banned all federal funding for ACORN. That vote was 345 to 75. All 173 Republicans and 172 of the 247 Democrats uh, voted against ACORN, despite the lack of validation of the charges. There's a legal term called bill of attainder, and bill of attainder is when judge, jury, and executioner is all encompassed in one entity namely Congress in this case. It's a due process violation. So a bill of attainder is an act of a legislature declaring a person or group of persons guilty of some crime and punishing them without a trial. This is why the Constitution actually contains, our U.S. Constitution actually contains a prohibition against Congress enacting a bill of attainder to prevent Congress from acting as judge, jury, and executioner. But a bipartisan effort to close down ACORN, and again, ACORN is the largest, most successful national anti-poverty organization in the U.S. at the time. And this bipartisan effort by Congress was actually ruled unconstitutional. It was ruled as an unconstitutional defunding of ACORN. A preliminary injunction was won in December of 2009 in the Center for Constitutional Rights case charging Congress with violating the U.S. Constitution's protections against that Bill of Attainders. On March 10, 2010, just three months later, a federal judge for the second time granted an injunction against Congress's unconstitutional defunding of ACORN to apply to federal budget provisions signed into law by President Obama in December of 2009 and ordered the United States of America and several named agencies to rescind orders cutting off funding to ACORN and its affiliates and allies. The General Accounting Office, you may have heard the GAO, it's the kind of like the congressional watchdog, if you will. In April of 2010, ACORN was forced to dismantle its operations. The GAO, this independent, nonpartisan agency that works for Congress, they often investigate how the federal government spends taxpayer dollars. On June 14, 2010, a preliminary probe of ACORN by the GAO found no evidence the association or related organizations mishandled the $40 million in federal money they had received in recent years. A review of grants by nine federal agencies found no problems with ACORN's grants. Most of the grants were for housing-related purposes during fiscal year 2005 through 2009. 
Okay, so to kind of sum up, the Republicans slandered through accusations that were not backed up by fact, but were dutifully promoted by both liberal and conservative press, allegations that later were proven to be unfounded. Congressional Democrats supported the slander based on political considerations alone rather than on verifiable merit or unmerit evaluation of the charges. This really reveals the core character of the Democratic Party, not being loyal to the truth and about what is best for the majority population, but instead the loyalty is to self-political standing and the economic elite status that it promotes and it's a part of. And damn the working class majority population and, and their rightful portion of the American pie if it threatens their own minority privilege. Arguably, in some cases, or maybe even many cases, Democratic lawmakers may not be consciously thinking this way. But the point is that there's no denying that the outcome, time and time again, is exactly in this manner. And so Democrats and Republicans were complicit in this extinguishing of ACORN, if you will. And you need to know that ACORN, it was fighting against those people in industries that act as parasites of the welfare of this disenfranchised class. I mean, the banking industry, it generally opposed ACORN's campaigns against redlining and predatory lending and its support of legislation like the Community Reinvestment Act to strengthen government regulation to the industry. So they really despised ACORN. Firms that are involved in predatory lending and payday lending and credit card abuses created a front group. It was called the Consumer Rights League to attack ACORN. And similarly, the restaurant, the hotel, the alcoholic beverage and tobacco industries who opposed ACORN's work because they were working towards raising wages through campaigns to adopt local living wage laws and to increase minimum wages, et cetera, at the state and federal levels. They created a front group, the Employment Policies Institute. And so organizations that claim to be grassroots-based citizen groups, but really were actually conceived and funded by not grassroots groups, but by corporations, industry trade associations, political interests, or public relation firms, this is how these progressive tendencies are fought. Actually, a term of it was called, they weren't called grassroots, they were called astroturf groups. A term coined by the late U.S. Senator Lloyd Benson to refer to organizations that claim to be grassroots-based citizen groups, but are actually conceived, created, and funded by you know corporations, industry trade associations, and those that benefit from holding workers' rights at bay. So anyhow, in conclusion, this is just further proof, and it's consistent with the, the 2018 UN report that we discussed or will be discussing, that despite what we might be told by Republicans and Democrats of how great our country is, the reality is different. Our country, it fails to deliver the promise of a reasonable opportunity to pursue happiness and have the basic needs of housing, nutrition, and education provided to all who are willing to work diligently to access it. And this is, again, the backdrop of what I believe we've shown is what has caused so many people to come to the streets and protests and very likely resulted in the conditions that uh, resulted in President Trump becoming president. This is all before the COVID virus, these conditions that we explicated in part one of our, uh, our series. Back after this.